Welcome to Activation Energy by the Chemical Angel Network. I'm your host, Selma Dulovic. In this episode, I speak once again with the Managing Director of Ecos VC, Dr. Judy Jordan. Judy has more than three decades of experience translating research into commercial opportunities. She has held executive roles at International Flavors and Fragrances, Pepsi and Henkel, as well as management and technical contributor positions at Polaroid and Alcoa. She has also served with the NSF as Program Director for the Integrative Graduate Education and Research Traineeship Program. Thank you for joining me again, Judy. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for doing it. I'd like to start by asking you to define innovation. How does it differ from invention and diffusion? To me, innovation is something that has been created, determined, and defined, and is brought out for use and deployed for greater good and greater use. Invention is something I come up with that's a unique idea, and a patent attorney, of course, could do far better at giving you an accurate definition of invention than I, but I can come up with something that's unique. That's something that somebody can put into a patent with certain claims, and that's an invention. If I'm not careful and I come up with one invention, I can create like Swiss cheese holes in a nice little patent landscape for an innovation because an innovation takes the ability to take that invention and move it through a set of processes to make it commercial. So you need to understand, now that I've got this invention, and that invention could be the basis of a platform where you could have multiple products and innovations that could go into multiple end-use markets. You need to make an innovation out of that invention to define what would those products or product be? What would the end-use markets be it would go into? Is there currently a gap in those end-use markets? for the properties and differentiators for the value proposition, what you would like to provide, to whom you wanna provide it in that market and why, and whether or not they feel there's a sufficient gap with a new product that you need to fill. You then need to take that innovation from its divine value proposition and market segment analysis and understanding its competitive product solutions and understanding why yours would be unique and validating that very substantially to being able to develop a solid business model against it. How are you gonna make money? What are the unit economics going to be? What's your price model gonna be? What's your revenue model gonna be? What's your sales model gonna be? And then what are the costs associated with that? What are the materials cost? How am I going to scale it? What manufacturing am I going to use? at the major three scale levels, the lab scale, when I make it little hand up things, the pilot scale level, and finally at a commercial level. And how does that come back to break even unit cost economics and profitability? And then taking all of those pieces and thinking about that go-to-market plan, which is just how am I gonna scale that at the lab level, the pilot level, and the commercial level, underpinned by how you're gonna deal with customer relations. Invention is making the cute little widget as an idea and having it on paper and maybe making a gram of it or one little hand laid up, one with hand soldered things in the lab. And innovation has all of those pieces to it. And diffusion, you're hoping it diffuses to other things, but innovation is an intentional process. It's a learnable process. And if I may uh, brag a little, 
That's what we do at my company, EcosVC, after I left the chemical industry, as, as you may know, I was an executive in the chemical and consumer products industries for a quarter of a century uh, when I left to start my own companies. And um, what I focus on had have been for the last decade is EcosVC, where we work with universities and accelerators, um, primarily across the US, to help people gain these skills. This is dramatically different than just discovering customers. I've yet to figure out what that means personally, because there's no great company I've ever had the opportunity to work for that doesn't do really, really solid innovation product market gap analysis before we move ahead and even decide whether or not the invention was ever worthwhile patenting to begin with. I have to admit that if I were to do one of those word association exercises, my mind would go straight to startups as being a associated with the word innovation. Large corporations would definitely not come to mind right away. Can you talk about innovation in large companies and the role it plays in allowing them to survive and stay relevant? Uh, what are the reasons that these giants are compelled to invest in research and development and ultimately innovation? I think you hit the key reason. You're going to survive. You have to make changes because the nature of the time, the, the requirements of the time from legislation to um, supply chain materials that are available to the expectations of the general public um, change. And so those innovations have to change. Um, what, what, you know, if you think about it, what the latest in trends and colors were back in the 1970s from Avogadro Green to Harvest Gold, uh, they are coming back to some extent, but they're not big today. So you've got to figure out a way to do that. And then you have to look at whether or not those um, colors fit the requirements of today's consumer, et cetera. If they're not water soluble and water dispersible, they're only solvent dispersible, that's not going to work today, et cetera. So companies need to innovate for that reason. Um, but I also think you make an enormously important point here. And I have to admit, it's a little sore spot in my world. After a quarter of a century of being responsible for innovation in various ways at some of the world's most amazing companies, the fact that it's associated with a startup. Yeah, those were startup companies. Yeah, some of them in the 1800s. That's an absolute fact. They were startups in the 1800s. But, um, you know, we innovate constantly. And it's also for another set of reasons, and that has to do with talent development and retention. Our greatest scientists and engineers, our greatest business people, our greatest staff uh, in, in, from everything from finance and HR, they want to innovate too. They want to bring their product, their vision, their belief, whether it's in human resources or whether out in the world. And that allows every human being to work together for the wisdom of the best crowd to move everything ahead. So it's also for the, I think, the mental health of the company and to keep the best people engaged. We want to be sure we give them that platform. Interesting. So it's not just to satisfy customers, but also other stakeholders in the ecosystem. Oh, by in my mind, having run organizations with lots of people reporting through them, my number one was, could I, number one is, know what the customer wants such that our R&D and manufacturing and scale up, because that's the part of the process I was in and selling to the market, they get the best product, which makes the inventors of it in the lab really proud and allows for the entire 
underpinning of senior management, shareholders, and stakeholders to feel loved and wanted and we're doing a great thing. So it really is a, um, it's really kind of a circle. It's everyone in, in that stakeholder and in that network needs to feel that they're part of it and they're proud to be part of it. Absolutely. And how would you say that innovation influences chemical industries dynamics uh, in terms of competition, collaboration, and subsequent evolution and growth? That is one heck of a big picture and a heck of a lot of things to unpack. So first of all, innovation is always the underpinning driver. And the reason it's the underpinning driver is because we have to go back to my definition of innovation. It's not coming up with a cool new idea. It's coming up with a brilliant new solution to a desired problem that doesn't have the best solution today. If we stick with that, the dynamic about that is always trying to develop that because you're trying to capture the emotional interest of the customer and the client and the general public. Even if you're a B2B, business to business, internal chemical company, so you're selling, you're not selling directly to consumer, as I did in some of my uh, career where I sold uh, directly consumer, or when you're in that B2B chain, you've got to know how to collaborate with other companies. Your final product is not going to be the one that sees the light of day. So when I had the opportunity to be with the amazing company Henkel, back then I was with the chemicals business, which was then sold off. We rolled it out. I was honored to be a, a small part of that rollout to, to recreate a Cognis, which was the chemicals business, which then got sold off. But we had to collaborate with people because we were selling into the textiles industry, the leather industry, the paper industry, metal treatment, coatings and inks. The list was endless. And so I had to be able to collaborate with all of those companies in those value chains to be able to help them move their product to the next step, which could be a consumer or to yet another level. And so that need of constant innovation to be able to satisfy an end market need. Remember, that's what we're doing. We're trying to solve those problems in the world. You have to collaborate to do that because you don't ever see the light of day yourself. Now, even if I'm, when I had the opportunity, the honor to be head of global R&D for Pepsi-Cola, when I brought stuff out, you know, when Pepsi brought stuff on the market and I brought out a lot of new products through Pepsi, even though I was in there a short time, from the Lipton Tea collaboration to um, the collaboration with Starbucks to Sierra Mist, we are only as good as the supply chain that supplied us. We had the honor of working with Tate and Lyle to bring sucralose on the market. We brought that out in the Lipton Tea products in Canada in our first out outgrowth. So even if you're a B2C company, you've got to collaborate with those behind you and you are morally obligated to do that. And, and we felt that way, that that was an important part of our role and our job. So if you're in the supply chain and in the value chain for those that are going to go out to the to the consumer you have to collaborate backwards with your suppliers and forwards with who you're selling to and if you're the you're seeing you're the consumer facing you're owning that entire brand equity so you have to trust the supply chain and the entire value chain that's supporting um, you as well and um, you know it's an interesting thing about the competition so um, I can't say certain names but when I had the opportunity to run uh, global R&D as a corporate officer for uh, what was at that point the world's largest uh, flavor and fragrance company, International Flavors and Fragrances, we had the opportunity, of course, let's just stick on the fragrance side, to um, for household, uh, for think about household products, detergents, stuff like that. We supplied some of the world's largest brands in that. 
And a big question about this collaboration versus competition was always, are you giving us your best innovation? Are you giving us your best product? You know, we compete with so-and-so, but you also supply so-and-so. And my answer was always a simple one. Do you feel that your brand equity, do you feel that your products position themselves? Do you believe that your brand promise is identical to so-and-so? Well, no, of course not. I said, therefore, my job is to give you, as your collaborator, the best products that fit your brand promise. So you go up against your competition, not me. It's giving you the tools to go against your competition successfully. My job is to collaborate with you. And so I think that is a dynamic that I don't think everyone understands. They see an end game. So-and-so competes with so-and-so. So-and-so collaborates with so-and-so. But it's really happening completely legally and appropriately throughout a supply chain and throughout a value chain. What are some of your favorite examples of current innovations in the chemical industry? My favorite. Oh, my. That means there's a non-favorite. That's always bad. I don't have non-favorites. Okay, so I happen to be really annoying when it comes to the chemical industry. I love it no matter what. And I trust it no matter what. I think the things that have the greatest hope going forward, or at least I have the greatest hope for them going forward, is the desire to collaborate and work with startups and give fledgling new little birdies a chance to fly. I believe that when I talk about the chemical enterprise, I talk about not just chemicals and consumer products, which I know very, very well, but there's also the pharmaceutical side. And I would like to um, shout out great praise to the pharmaceutical side, enormous praise to the pharmaceutical side. The pharmaceutical side has managed to stay innovative by truly respecting and understanding the value chain in that process, what they do the best and embracing collaboration with others to fill in other pieces. That doesn't mean at all that the brilliant research science that's going on at these pharmaceutical companies requires small startups to give them new things. I'm not in any way, shape or form denigrating that. Yet the pharmaceutical part of the chemical enterprise has embraced this broader vision of collaborative innovation with smaller companies, with startups, to help them along as part and parcel of a broader network. I believe that the chemical part of the chemical enterprise would do well to more and more take a play from that little playbook. They're not doing it as well as I would hope. And I think that there are many companies trying to, please don't get me wrong. I think it's just, we're all learning. So that's the biggest hope I have for the future. And the biggest um, question I have as to how well we're going to pull it off. This notion that compared to pharma, the chemical industry is not as effective or efficient in interfacing with startups. Is that because of the way the industry is structured? Is there a human competence factor that plays a role? Or is it something else? What exactly could be improved? 
That's a really, really good question. I'm not so sure I really have a, a, a clear answer because anything that has a human component as everything does, you know, I love to say to people, you know, it's easy. I, I, I could probably do the science to get somebody to Pluto. The question is, can I convince them to go? Um, it, it, the pro, it's the human component. And of course, talent development and innovation and outreach is a combination, not just of the human element. It's also the nature of the brand promise of that particular company, what it sees itself, what it's with stakeholders and shareholders are, believe they're paying for. Heck, if I'm paying for this much in basic R&D, uh, why am I paying for you to go out and talk to somebody? Is that sort of internal question happening, which I hope it's not, but it might be. So I think there's that constant, there's that constant dynamic about it. And I don't have a clear answer, but I do know that the pharmaceutical industry, if you look at a lot of data, did struggle with this for a good decade or so before it finally said, wait, I can do this. I can do both. I can walk and chew gum at the same time. I can do a great job in my own labs and I can reach out and help others. It also may have to do, and I don't know this, but it goes back to my questions and my concepts on volumes and supply chains and the nature and supply chain. And the question of whether or not, um, so to create a sustainable innovation that keeps along means you have to understand your supply chain for making all of that happen. If you're a B2B chemical company, sometimes you're supplying billions and billions and billions of metric tons a year to keep things going. Oftentimes in the pharmaceutical industry, and I'm sure that my pharmaceutical uh, colleagues will beat me up about the stupidity of this next comment, but sometimes their volumes may not be as the same scale that we deal with on the chemical side all the time. Unless, you know, unless you're dealing with, you know, calcium carbonate for calcium hydroxide for, you know, an antacid or something, I guess. But um, the volumes just aren't as large. And so sometimes that may play to it. And the nature of the technologies and the, the batch make of the way things work and gets through FDA may change things as well. That I don't know. I'm not, I don't know well enough about that, but that could be part of it as well. It's just the nature of the scale, the nature of the expectation, the nature of the consistency of the enormous volume of the product that could that could play that could play into it as well as with the previous episode this has been really insightful judy thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about innovation really appreciate it 